0: Thank <laughs> you. Every Monday to Friday,
1: this is Peter Lewis's Money talk. Money talk.
0: Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for the penultimate show of the year. It's Thursday, the 21st of December. Thank you for listening to Money Talk and making it one of the most listened to podcasts in Hong Kong throughout 2023, according to the PodStats. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's banks held the one-year loan prime rate, the peg for most household and corporate loans in the country, at a record low of 3.45% for the fourth consecutive month. The five-year benchmark loan rate, the peg for most mortgages, was unchanged at 4.2% for the sixth straight month. U.S. consumer confidence has risen to its highest level since July, as optimism about the economy grew in December and concerns over a potential recession abated. The Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index, a measure of what Americans think of current and future economic conditions, rose to 110.7 this month, up from a downwardly revised 101 in November. Consumers' views of current business and labour market conditions also ticked higher. The Hong Kong government has announced an action plan to develop Hong Kong into a leading international maritime centre and promote the sustainable development of the industry. The action plan on maritime and port development strategy, unveiled by the Transport and Logistics Bureau on Wednesday, lays out 10 strategies and 32 actions to lift Hong Kong's status as an international maritime centre, including developing Hong Kong as a green and smart port. Secretary for Transport and Logistics, Lam Sai said the plan aims to address challenges including a decline in cargo throughput and competition from other ports in the region. A US-led military coalition and ship owners are racing to strengthen security in a key artery of global trade in the Middle East as more than 100 vessels start to divert around Africa to avoid attacks by Iranian-backed militia. Operation Prosperity Guardian, a strengthened naval task force in the Red Sea unveiled by the Pentagon on Monday, is planning to establish a safe corridor for commercial shipping, together with at least half a dozen allies. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory and Alicia Garcia Herrero, Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis. With a view from Singapore is Jeff Howey, Market Strategist at the Singapore Exchange. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website and post any questions or comments there. That's at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and you'll also find my daily newsletter with updates on the latest business and finance news from around the Asia Pacific region. Talk. On Wall Street on Wednesday, US stocks slumped in afternoon trading despite no fresh catalyst. The S&P 500 closed 1.5% lower at 4,698, having spent much of the morning in positive territory. It was the worst day for the broad index since September the 26th. The Dow snapped a nine-day winning streak, tumbling 476 points. That's 1.3% to 37,082. And, as that composite traded one and a half percent lower at fourteen thousand seven hundred and seventy eight, relative strength readings on the main gauges had been trading at extreme levels typically seen before a decline. Yields on longer-term US Treasuries hit their lowest levels in about five months as traders continue to bet that the Fed is done with raising interest rates in this cycle. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury was down eight basis points at 3.85%. That's the lowest since July 27th. The benchmark rate is down more than 40 basis points so far this month. The dollar rebounded Wednesday. The US dollar index rose a third of a percent to 102.46. The yen strengthened as US stocks tumbled into the closing bell, rising 0.2% to 143.5 against the dollar. And the offshore yuan slipped 0.4% to around 7.15 per dollar, retreating from over six-month highs as the central bank kept benchmark lending rates unchanged, despite pressure to ease monetary policy further amid a faltering economic recovery. Oil prices reached $80 a barrel at one stage on Wednesday as traders worried that threats to shipping in the Red Sea from militants based in Yemen could disrupt crude supply. Brent Crude gave back some of the gains in US trading to settle 0.6% higher at $79.70 per barrel. Spot gold fell as the dollar rose. The precious metal was down 0.6% at $2,028 an ounce. And Hong Kong stocks paired gains in the afternoon session as the PBOC maintained key lending rates at record lows. The Hang Seng Index gained 109 points or 0.7% to end the day at 16,614. Year to date, the city's benchmark index has lost 16%. Mainland China was the only large market in Asia that fell yesterday the CSI 300 closed 1.1% lower, taking its year-to-date losses to almost 15%. Alibaba shares rose 2.7% to the highest level of the month after the Hong Kong-listed e-commerce group announced another management reshuffle, concentrating more power in the hands of Chief Executive Eddie Wu. And it looks like it's going to be an ugly open for Hong Kong stocks this morning. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 340 points. That's 2.1% at the open. The index looks set to start the day at about 16,275. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com.
2: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's
3: Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money
0: Talk. Time to welcome our guests. Our regular Thursday morning commentator is here for the final time this year, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good
3: morning. Fourth time COVID victim. Oh, fourth, for you, Peter.
0: fourth time. That's pretty unlucky, Andrew, I have to say. <laughs> Hope you feel better soon. Also with us, Alicia Garcia-Herrero, who's Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific and the Texas. Great to speak with you again, Alicia.
2: Yeah, very nice to speak to you, Peter. China's banks held
0: their one-year loan prime rate, that's the peg for most household and corporate loans in the country, at a record low of 3.45% for the fourth consecutive month. China last cut the one-year rate in August. That was at the time of mounting concern over its troubled property sector. And the five-year benchmark loan rate, which is the peg for most mortgages was left unchanged at 4.2% for the sixth straight month. And Wednesday's decision came after the central bank ramped up liquidity injections through medium-term policy last week, while keeping interest rates unchanged. Um, Andrew, let me start with you. China's got weak demand. It's got deflation. There's an ongoing property crisis. We had some disappointing economic data recently. Is China doing enough here to support the recovery, do you think?
3: Yeah, um, I'm afraid I will have to give an answer to a completely different question. That is a a nice interviewer for you. Okay, (laughs) China has never really used monetary policies proactively and, uh, and let's say, forcefully when it came to to counter-cyclical movements, hence complaining that they didn't cut enough interest rates. And here they are, you know, the economy continues to be slightly Slightly Yukon, they are not doing something more active. Well, they are. They don't don't believe in prices, they believe in quantities. So in other words, they pump in liquidity into the market, but they still keep interest rates where they are. So the fact that here we are coming at the end of the year and you are not getting anything new in terms of interest rates, Mm. it's not surprising and it's very much par for the cost. Remember, in 101 economics, you can either control the price or the quantity. Ideally, all central banks try to do both. Thank God the People's Bank of China is not. They are actually saying we will control the quantity and hence the repeated injections of liquidity. And as far as the price is concerned, we'll try to twiddle it as little as possible. They have some kind of DNA detest of cutting interest rates. I mean, they would never would have done what the Fed did to go from zero to here go from zero to to 5.25% and down again. Okay, that's not the Chinese
0: style. Uh, Alicia, let's get your thoughts. I mean, China's pumped a lot of liquidity into the economy over the past week, but it it seems that the problem doesn't seem to be access to liquidity or credit, is it? I I thought it was feeble demand that's the the problem.
2: Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, there's something called endogeneity between quantities and prices, meaning there is a lot of liquidity pumped interest rates, market interest rates should go down. Uh, and uh, therefore there should be easing in monetary policy just by using quantitative uh, tools. That is in principle what quantitative easing is all about. So uh, saying that China is not trying to ease, I think it is trying to ease. I agree perhaps not using interest rates, but but it is easing. It's just that, as you said, there's no demand for credit. But where there is demand, and we can see that in rates in the money market, sometimes very tight. We have had moments with Shiba really shooting up. This is because there is a lot of counterparty risk in the financial sector. There is a number of smaller banks in particular that are not getting access to to credit. So there is liquidity, Peter, but it's not well distributed. Mm. And because the smaller banks are the ones lending to the SMEs uh, the most, um, that means that there is, in some areas in the Chinese economy, some sort of credit crunch while there is excess liquidity elsewhere. This is very common when there is financial instability or uncertainty, basically credit risk growing in the economy, which has been the case for for more than, I would say, basically two years since, since COVID started with lots of risk on SMEs, et cetera, et cetera, the real estate sector, you name it.
0: And and is this going to become a focus next year, the, the credit risks, and, and in particular, maybe the pressure that's being heaped on the banks, because they're the ones who are being asked to support uh, the property sector, support local governments, but they've got declining profit margins. So um, that that's a problem for them. They've got increasing non-performing loans. There There is a lot of pressure being um, piled onto the banks at the moment, isn't there?
2: That's right. Uh, banks are asked to help, basically. I mean we had a very important uh, piece of uh, I would say news because it's not really legislation. It looks more like uh like a, like an informal tool, but still uh, we know there is this fifty white horses, meaning real estate developers that will be supported by banks. Partly the lists are at the bank level, meaning there's fifty white horses per bank, which means very many, as you can imagine, for China as a mm. whole, that need to be supported by banks. Yeah. So, so this is one of those measures you just mentioned. Yes, there is support. It's a different type of support, but we can't deny there is. And the fact that the market is not reacting properly shows that either it's not enough, not well understood, um, maybe at the end of the day, market forces uh, would be better in terms of uh, rates. Maybe, because it is clear that the market is not reacting positively to these type of measures. Mm
0: -hmm. Andrew, next year, um, the property sector, we're not seeing any improvement in it at all, are we? When you look at all the data, it just seems to be getting worse in terms of investment in the property sector, declines in home prices. Is next year going to be the crunch year where um, Beijing is going to have to come up with a solution?
2: Uh,
3: The answer has, it's a kind of a pincer answer, and that is, given that the state can do very little to push up prices, for example, my favorite index is the one of 70 cities that uh, has been coming down for nearly 18 to 19 months now, and not just coming down, negative, in other words, it's been shrinking, okay, prices have been falling as opposed to uh, rising less, okay, since the government cannot do anything specifically about that, then uh, of course, the other solution will be to start looking at the balance sheet, and this is the warring aspect. In other words, the value of assets on the right-hand side of the balance sheet of the property sector are continuously coming down, and that means the left-hand side, which is their liabilities, are not changing, and any further deterioration in prices will invariably need, lead to a kind of a crunch, a balance sheet crunch, and that will involve two things. It will either involve renewed subsidies by the state, this time literally forced loans, or simply the state taking over uh, in indirectly property sector or bankruptcies. There is, there is no, 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 no escape out of that. So in other words, for next year, my suspicion is we're going to see a lot more uh, balanced action as opposed to things that will make consumers willing to buy more properties, so simple as that.
0: At some point, these assets have got to be valued properly, haven't they, because they're not on the balance sheet at their correct um, value, they're, they're being treated. Um, and, and that's distorting, you know, the earnings of these companies that uh, that own them. At some point, someone's got to take these losses, haven't they, and recognize um, the losses.
3: Again, this then is <laughs> a kind of a domino, this splits in two parts. Uh, one wants to know on the liability side, of the property developers, uh, who are the banks that have actually lent them. And in the case of China, given that four of the major banks that own more than nearly 50% of all the assets of the banking sector is the state itself. Yes, it is, it is a state. Mm-hmm. So in whichever way one looks at it, that is going to have an impact on China's fiscal deficit. There is no escape. And China has actually signaled that it is willing to see it's fiscal deficit to increase. I'm not quite sure whether this was an advanced positive warning that uh, we are going to get into problems with balance sheet, and therefore we will have to bail out, and bailing out would simply mean us borrowing money and then using this to bail out companies, which is a non-productive way of of using capital, but uh, other than let it go and let the uh, domino effect ripple through, the rest of the sector, but the rest of the sector is the other 50% of the banking sector. So it's, it is very difficult to perceive that you're going to have a systemic banking crisis in China when nearly half the banking sector is the state mm-hmm. and the state has still a huge capacity to borrow. Okay. At 3.4% of fiscal deficit of, of GDP, it's peanuts. Mm-hmm. China can easily double that. Of course, borrowing domestically and the fact Unlike Argentina or Russia or Brazil at some states, China is not a net debtor overseas. It's actually a net lender, okay, with uh, being still one of the major holders of U.S. government bonds. In other words, and of course, uh, an overall uh, secular current account surplus. China actually lends the rest of the world money. Very simple. So it's, it's easy to deal with it, but a very unproductive way.
0: Hmm. Alicia, what are your thoughts on the, on the China debt issues? I mean, there are huge amounts of unrealized losses sitting on balance sheets of banks, of local governments, uh, and, and so on. Um, at some point, these losses are going to have to be recognized and are going to have to be taken, aren't they, by, by someone, somewhere? Oh.
2: Uh, Well, uh, just a couple of numbers. Uh, China's augmented fiscal deficit, according to the IMF, is around 13% of GDP per year. So that's the deficit. The the official deficit has been increased to 3.8. But everybody everybody knows, uh, China included, that that's not the actual deficit. The deficit is much bigger. Mm. It doesn't mean that All of that has full guarantee because these are local government financial vehicles. You know, they could go bust, but the the minute they go bust, they affect banks. They affect uh, basically households holding wealth management products. So, you know, the loss does not disappear because it's not been fully recognized. Debt by now uh, is around 100% of GDP. The IMF has come up with an estimate of 150 by 2027. That's where we are. So this means that China is literally as indebted as the U.S. But, of course, Andrew is right. This is not external debt to a very, very small extent. China has assets to sell. There's no doubt about it. It so happens it's not selling anything, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Like, it is good to have uh, assets. But the point is that for China to reduce its debt, it would have to change its economic model. And I don't think China is ready to do that. So, that debt exists. I agree fully that this is not a debt crisis, a banking crisis whatsoever. It is just what Japan went through, which was also a much bigger, by the way, net external net creditor than China, but it didn't manage to avoid deflation. And that's the direction, of course. The direction, of course, is heavier and heavier debts, because when you are Uh, obviously uh, deflating your economy and you are a debtor, the debt becomes bigger and bigger. And that basically brings down potential growth. So this is a growth problem. It's not a balance of payments problem. It's not a banking crisis problem.
0: Mm. But uh, at some point, um, if, if China wants to avoid going down the same path that Japan went down at the, at the beginning of the 90s, um, it, it's got to recognize the, the true value of these assets, hasn't it? That's That's been the problem. They're, they're sort of fictitious assets at the moment.
2: Exactly. I mean, just a unfortunately, just a big bang. I mean, put it this way. To avoid Japan, you need a crisis. To avoid a crisis, you end up in Japan. I mean, that's that's... Mm-hmm in a way, the choice. But there's no there's no free lunch here. Uh, yes. There's really no free lunch.
3: Mm.
0: Okay, so it's going to be interesting to see um, how that develops. Let me ask you both about the Bank of Japan. That's, uh, that's the other central bank uh, that's been meeting uh, this year. Andrew, they left... Um, their monetary policy unchanged. Some people were a little bit disappointed because they thought uh, that Kazuo Aida might signal a way out of um, his yield curve control policy and also negative interest rates, but no sign um, of of that happening um, at the moment. But surely at some point, this has got to come to an end, hasn't it?
3: Well, you know, Peter, I'm going to answer that question by taking a slightly tangential point here. And that is the Bank of Japan wants inflation at two percent the bank of japan for nearly a year and a half has having inflation over three percent over three percent so the question is is what's their problem okay in other words if i look at the cpi in the last six months it has varied between 3.3 percent and uh, about 3.3 percent right now Mm. okay and the core uh, cpi also varied anything between 2.6 and 2.9 in other words inflation has been a relatively, relatively nearer on the core side and relatively higher on, uh, on the CPI side. The Bank of Japan wants 2%. It is getting more than 2%, and that's what it wants. It wants more inflation, and it still somehow carries on pushing interest rates down. And I'm not quite sure what is the argument here. And the argument here is, is they actually say that they don't trust there are signs of inflation of being above two percent and staying above two percent cyclically, and they consider that these movements over the year have been attributed by all kinds of different factors including higher higher fuel prices, and they want the inflation to be driven above two percent by domestic increases in demand and specifically wages mm. it's a very complicated argument in other words you say look you want inflation over two percent right yes you've got it so why you carry on with with uh, uh with loose monetary policy it's worked it pushed the inflation over and above and the answer is, is yes it has but will it stay there and it is over and above the two percent not for the reasons that we wanted hence we stick still with lower interest rates Until when inflation goes to four, 5%, and I'm sure Bank of Japan will tell you, no, until inflation is driven where it is by higher wage pressures. Mm. Weird, but truth. Okay, so I look at it and I'll say, well, it makes some kind of crazy sense that they stick at still negative interest rates, which is also delicious because it shows you that internationally, the four major banks in the world are completely all over the place. Bank of China has stopped. The United States is perhaps about to cut. The European Union says no, we're not cutting. And Bank of Japan says, oh yes, we are, and we are sticking at at negative. Mm-hmm. Lovely, I love that. Mm-hmm. uh, I will have no idea what on earth we're (laughs) talking about.
0: (laughs) Uh, Alicia, I I suppose if the Bank of Japan wants the right type of inflation, it doesn't like imported deflation, it wants domestic inflation, and it wants uh, to see wage increases, it can't do anything about wage increases. So presumably all it can do is wait now till the the wage negotiations next spring.
2: Exactly. And that's what the BOJ is going to do. And quite frankly, I do think that without higher wages, Japan will very soon end up with very low inflation because prices in, I mean, inflation in the US, according to our forecast at Texas, will hit 2.8% 2. in 2024, end of the year. Europe, 2.1%. So, you know, inflation is not going to be found anywhere. And by the way, China is exporting deflation. So I do not think the BOJ has, uh, you know, genuine concerns uh in terms of its of inflation now being temporary, I do think it's temporary, unless they get wages up. The problem is that they can't artificially push wages up without productivity, and that that's that's the problem. I mean, they could, they could, they could forcibly, but this means that, in a way, eventually the Japanese economy would not benefit from such higher wages. So in a way, yes. Uh, I think they will move out after, uh, with or without, to be frank. I think by now, with or without wage increases, the BOJ will move out of negative rates. But it may stay, it may stay at zero if there is no wage increases. So, we- uh, and this is this is the conundrum for BOJ.
0: So really, what you're saying here is that next year we've got um, quite a, an interesting divergence in terms of inflation in, in different economies around the world, and also what the central banks um, are going to be doing about it um, around the world. As Andrew said, they're they're sort of moving in different directions at the moment, aren't they? What what about the US? Do you um, the the dot plots were talking now suddenly about three rate cuts uh, next year in the US? Do you see that as uh, as likely?
2: I think, first of all, let me tell you what our call is. We have as much as, and we have had this for a long time, 150 basis points for the U.S., 125 for the European Central Bank. Main reason is not recession or, you know, we have, of course, lower growth in the U.S., but hovering around 1.2 for next year. So it's not a recession scenario. And frankly speaking, if numbers keep on coming as good as they're coming lately, we may, to, we may need to push it up again, as we did last year. Everybody was surprised it might be the case next year. Uh, for Europe, again, 1.1%, so double the growth we have had in 2023. Uh, if you look at energy prices, you can figure, I mean, there's no energy problem in Europe at the moment. Prices are basically average 60%. Uh, for, for gas, and, and that's that's where we are. So uh, the, this means that uh, cutting rates is all about deflation, having now a real force in the U.S. and European economies. And you can see that from the second half of 2023. It's very, very obvious. So the divergence is less, if I may say so, because China is not going to diverge by hiking rates, is it? Mm. It's just going to probably uh, continue with a moderate, I fully agree, moderate expansionary uh, monetary policy, which basically is helped by the Fed and the European Central Bank because the, the, the interest rate differential will be much smaller.
0: Mm. So you're saying, I mean, six. You're projecting six rate cuts in the U.S. next year. That's a very aggressive um, cutting cycle. Normally, you you wouldn't see that from uh, from the Fed unless something bad was going on. But but you're saying that this is going to come about because of deflation.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's bear in mind that the second half of 2023. The disinflation in, in, in the world is also explained by China, by China's export prices, let alone wholesale prices, have been growing negatively. Latest data was as bad as minus 3.3% for wholesale prices. So that's disinflationary by all means for the world because China exports one third of intermediate goods mm. to the world. That's that's a massive disinflationary shock that the world is going through, positive for that matter. So this is very good news for the rest of the world. It might not be for China down the road if they can't exit this disinflationary or the deflationary environment. But it is very good news for, for the Fed, for the European Central Bank, et cetera.
0: Andrew, well, we've spoken before about your thoughts on the, uh, on the, on the Fed. I, I suspect you're not um, – well, you, you've doubted whether the Fed is even going to um, cut three times next year, let alone six.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, uh, Alicia, I, in general, I, you know, I don't like taking, taking a contrary view with someone who's talking to me because it sounds a little bit, uh, let's say, adversarial. But trust me, it isn't. It's just my view. Actually, I'm afraid I don't buy at all the deflationary shock from China for two very simple reasons. One, producer prices in China has been falling for more than a year and a half. So if we're going to get a deflationary shock, we should have had it by now. And also of course the exchange rate has also collapsed. So that is also very deflationary by making Chinese imports, exports much, much cheaper. And again, we haven't seen this. So I can't see that China is going to be something that is going to trigger a deflationary move in the United States. And also, I'm afraid I'm a, I'm a profound and convinced existentialist, and therefore a follower of Jean-Paul Sartre that said "Worlds are very important because that's the only thing we have. Okay, I'll go back to Mr. Powell recently, about two weeks ago saying, I don't see inflation down to 2% before year 26 could go 26 next year is 24 the year after after is 25 and then well he's either joking or he's exaggerating i take the two things together that the fed isn't going to cut interest rates anywhere anywhere soon okay because it doesn't believe that inflation is going to come down that quickly Mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's the, the the three things brought together one is just what the fed is telling me or at least i think it is telling me and the other simply observing whether China is, in fact, deflating the world.
2: Mm.
0: Alicia, do you see maybe also potential for risks to the upside? I mean, we've got these blockages now in two key trade routes around the world, in the Panama Canal and now in the Suez Canal um, as well, which could potentially drive up commodity prices such as oil, drive up container prices as well. Is, is there a risk that maybe um, in, inflation could spike to the upside again?
2: Well, these type of shocks, including the Red Sea, you know very well because you watch markets, you read them in the markets the day it happens. Mm. Uh, it doesn't take six months for oil prices to react. And frankly, we had very little reaction uh, since uh, uh, Hamas attack to uh, Israel and uh, Israel's response and all of the rest. So if I don't think markets, uh must have been on holiday for two months already, if you see what I mean. No, <laughs> I do think that uh, energy conditions in the world, notwithstanding attempts by OPEC to, to collude with Russia, if you recall, just aren't the same, just aren't the same. And even if uh, I've been positive on, you know, describing growth in the U.S. and Europe, let's face it, the U.S. economy is still much larger than the EU, especially without the Britain. And the U.S. economy is going to decelerate by half. I didn't say it's not going to. So that's less demand for oil. Mm-hmm. China is going to decelerate from 5.2 or so to 4.5 in our view. That's less demand for, for oil. Um, India has grown probably 7% this year. It might not repeat that humongous growth next year. So, so frankly... I don't think the oil markets uh, will be so positive this year in terms of prices because of what I just said. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that shock will come.
0: The the monetarists would also side with you. They say that we're we're seeing um, a a big collapse in money supply um, at the moment, the opposite to what happened at the time of the pandemic when money supply absolutely shot up because of all the liquidity being pumped into the system by governments and central banks. We're now seeing the opposite, which presumably also supports the deflation arguments.
2: Yes, I mean, I don't think uh, the West is going to get into again, let's face it. I mean, it's just going to manage to be, to to disinflate. But you're right. I mean, we still have a lot of monetary tightening to accomplish, and it won't be done only in 2024. It's going to take years. So that uh, monetary restraint basically will need to remain, and that's a big disinflationary force, as you said. Mm-hmm.
0: Andrew, final thoughts from, from you. What, what do you see as being sort of the big risks, if you like, to the global economy uh, next year, if, if there are any?
3: Uh, <clears throat> a continuing disillusionment with uh, the exercise of violence and power across the world in the sense that we have two major wars going on. We have the Israeli-Hamas war and we have the Ukrainian uh, war with uh, big hiccups. Coming on, whether one supports uh, Zelensky or uh, so, so, uh, supports uh, Ukraine and, and its president, uh, or it supports uh, Putin, and uh, I think this has introduced a kind of a sour bitterness in the proceedings and the November elections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In other words, election of Trump will be seismic effect because, for a start, it will throw all the progress on climate completely out of the window. In other words, COP28, it will become COP0 because the man said repeatedly, I'm going to get out again of Mm. Paris 15, as he did last time. Mm. He didn't invent it. Now, it takes quite a while to get out, but simply signing notice that you're getting out is is bad news. So for me, right now, my fixture is, is what is going to happen in the November elections. This could have very significant impact, both in terms of the peace or war, because Trump is violently pro-Israel. I'm not suggesting this is a criticism; it's a statement. Okay, and uh, not very keen at all on NATO, and therefore the efforts towards uh, containing Putin, and uh, huh, also its position, his position uh, across to, to China. So an election of Trump will really throw all the, the games or the little rules we have out of the window. And I don't think Powell in any way will be influenced in adding or not adding interest rates because Trump is or is not going to be elected. Okay, mm-hmm. so, And mm-hmm. I'm afraid this is a completely political event. There's nothing I can do to forecast it accurately or not. Mm-hmm. Trump mm-hmm. is going to get elected
0: Alicia, final quick thoughts from you. I mean, elections are going to take centre stage, aren't they, next year? We've got them coming up, obviously, in the US, as Andrew was just talking about, also in Taiwan, um, in India, some key elections there, geopolitical risks, political risks. Uh, do you see them as being the at the forefront of concerns next year?
2: I mean, uh, we focus on elections because this, this is what we know is happening, uh, meaning those elections are announced and... And have consequences depending on people's votes, but we always forget that even uh, you know uh, non democratic regimes uh, could have surprises uh without elections yeah and 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 these are really the the big um, the big uh Big surprises, uh, mm-hmm. if, if you think about it. I think it, at the end of the day, yes, uh, Trump will be a disaster. We all know that. We, he might not even be able to run. So, you know, we, that's another surprise from Colorado that we just kind of <laughs> had breakfast <laughs> with last uh, yesterday. Yes, so, you know, things change. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to happen. But what we know even less is what's going to happen with autocratic regimes. They have no support. That's the big elephant in the room. Uh, so, so as much as we can discuss about Taiwan elections, at the end of the day, it's very narrow here. I'm now in Taipei. I mean, it could be anything, but it will not dramatically, in my view, change. You know what, what, what this island is all about. So, so for me, the big changes come actually from that, that, that unexpected uncertainty, which nobody thinks about, which is from autom- autocratic regimes. Hmm. Say isn't
3: there
2: anymore. What does it mean for the world? A
0: lot. And we don't even think about it. Okay. Well, look, I'd love to talk to you both a a lot more about this. Plenty of interesting discussion points there. Sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you both very much. You heard there Alicia Garcia-Herrero, who's Chief Economist for Asia Pacific and the Texas. Andrew Ferris, who's the CEO of Econosis Advisory. And a very happy Christmas and New Year to both of you. I'm joined now by Jeff Howey, who is market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Peter. I've just done a a quick tot-up of the performance of some of the Southeast Asian markets for 2023. So Singapore, Straits Times down 4.4% year-to-date. Philippines off 0.7%. Jakarta looking pretty good, up 5.4%. Malaysia down 2.1%. Thailand off 6.1% so far this year. Obviously, not as bad as what we've been seeing here in Hong Kong and China, but certainly way below what we've been seeing elsewhere in markets such as the US, Japan, India, and so on. What's sort of been the main drivers behind this this year's sort of lacklustre performance in Southeast Asia?
1: It really comes down to growth, uh, growth in interest rates. uh, And that's from uh, taking a global lens to what's happening here. Because overall, we do continue to, I guess, tick over uh, in terms of consumer growth. But tourism is really important. Investment flows are really important. As is uh, broader growth, particularly in the manufacturing and the industrial part of our ASEAN economy. And as you but as you say, you know, you've got some gainers like Indonesia, some decliners like Thailand, and some of them are in the middle or a little bit more in the middle like Singapore, Malaysia. So overall ASEAN has been more mixed this year and it brings the aggregate benchmarks, when you take into account our, I guess you could say, comparatively higher dividend yields, it means total returns for the aggregate benchmarks are pretty much flat this year. Uh, Indonesia generated in U.S. dollar total returns of 10% with one week to go for the year. Malaysia and Thailand benchmarks, you know, as you mentioned before, they were more respective declines. With Thailand seeing more decline than Malaysia, um, the third quarter GDP growth rates year-on-year year for Indonesia, that that was at 4.9%. For Malaysia, it was 2.6%. And for Thailand, it was less 1.5%. So you can see some correlation there in the performances of the benchmarks and the growth growth rates. And looking ahead for next year, IMF um, do expect growth rates of 5% for Indonesia, 4% Malaysia and 3.2% for Thailand. So Indonesia clearly is commanding much of the growth in this region or, or, or more of the growth um, for, for the region as a whole. But all of it's of course, as is before, it's very contingent on global factors. So you know, aside from contributing the most to global GDP, the US economy is also ASEAN's largest source of foreign direct investment. China is ASEAN's largest trading partner. ASEAN is also China's largest trading partner, I think, since 2020, thereabouts. So what that means is that five and a quarter to five and a half percent Fed funds rate, uh, the contraction in global semiconductor sales and all that inventory overhang we've had this year, the broader impact of that deep deepening property downturn in China, that's all played a key role in shaping our regional outlook for most of this year. But at the same time, they do present potential inflection points for their for next year, um, so so should those. Let's say those inflections don't eventuate, uh, stocks, their investors, that they, they would all be expected to continue to seek ways in our market to, uh, I guess, optimize value and 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 find risk to returns that are that are appropriate. Um, in in the Indonesian stock market, that was really led this year by the industrials and the financial mega sectors. Uh, real estate and utilities were still very strong in the Malaysian market and the telecommunications sector also bucked the broad sector declines in, in Thailand. So there's, there's there, it, that unevenness that we're seeing in the growth rate is also extending into many of the sectors. But looking ahead, I guess Indonesia it has its elections on the 14th of Feb. Inflation does remain well anchored in Thailand. They have their 2.5% policy rate, which is comparatively low. But as the Thailand policymakers have also flagged, that impact of softer external demand, slower than expected rebound of tourism, um, and which has been compounded by, I guess, China's uncertainty in its economic recovery have weighed. So I guess that's the the state of the union for Southeast Asia going into 2024.
0: And, and in Indonesia, which is the, the sort of the standout performance, there's been a lot of privatisations this year, hasn't there? Presumably that's helped particularly attract um, new foreign investors, foreign interest into the market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And especially in uh, two key structural uh, economic drivers for the region, which uh, Indonesia is particularly prominent in, is first uh, the global sustainability drive. And that's uh, we've seen that in ups- upstream green mining in Indonesia, as well as uh, digitalisation. Uh, and uh, AI, of course, can only help to enhance uh, the digitalization efforts of, of Southeast Asia as well. So they're, they're two particular areas where there's been uh, a certain amount of uh, investment activity, um, both in the listed space as well as the non-listed markets.
0: And what are valuations like across uh, the the Southeast Asian markets? I should imagine that, um, given sort of particularly the underperformance in some of the markets, they, they they may be looking quite compelling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You are right. On a price to book basis, uh, y- you know your, your your banks generally are close uh, are, are not trading at discounts to their to to their book value, and that's obvious given the. Massive growth in not in net interest income this year, as well as some growth that they've been able to forge in non-interest income. But the majority of stocks are trading at uh, discounts to their um, to their five-year book values. And if you look also uh, on the SGX, we, we've got a, a on our website we we have a stock screener, and that stock screener takes the consensus estimate target prices that Refinitiv collate, and we update them every hour. So if you take a look at all those. Uh, a definitive, uh consensus estimate target prices of where these share prices could be in the next eighteen months or so. Generally, uh, most of the stocks are trading at, uh, on average, at a fifteen to twenty percent discount to where their consensus estimate target prices would be. Um, and and you know, given that we've got so many real estate stocks and and bank stocks. And so forth. We tend to look at price to book ratios uh, as well as um, those consensus estimates more so than PE ratios, given PE ratios obviously have less relevance, as you know, in the banking sector and the real estate s- sector as well, which makes up something like you know fifty percent of our day to day turnover.
0: I, I'm wondering if Southeast Asia could be a bit of a safe haven in the world in, in 2024, because we've got a lot of problems, haven't we? We've got the war in Ukraine and yeah. the Middle East. We've got supply disruptions going on now in the Red Sea, geopolitical tensions between the, the US and China. Could sort of Southeast Asia insulate itself from some of those problems and, and be the safe haven next year?
1: Yeah, you know, you know, because as you said before, you've you have seen institutions rotate into the likes of India, Japan, and Australia this year, and and obviously that's institutions seeking AUM growth. Uh, in the case of Southeast Asia, when you are seen as a more safer bet, um, that possibly was to our detriment when we saw about four billion. Four billion Singapore dollars of net institutional outflow in our stock market this year, with one week to go. But you know, it's it's not huge when you consider you've had 112 Sing billion dollars of net buying into our market versus 116 billion net selling of uh, oh sorry 100 and 116 billion of total selling by institutions in our market this year. So uh, that's that's one thing that might tip back uh, if if indeed as you say we uh, assess all the challenges versus the potential inflections and we, we you know the pendulum moves back to the left in terms of risk to reward and we, uh, we we see some risk off the table but I think I just want to do point out one market that we do have here Peter it's not our most traded ETF now but it's generally our second or uh, most traded ETF on a day-to-day basis and it's that familiar. Geopolitical destabilization um, risk that has remained firmly in the frame this year, as well as it has over the last four years, for that matter. And that, what that what um, that has done is seen a very consistent performance in our spider gold shares ETF. So golds mm-hmm. outpaced global regional benchmarks over the past five years, something like an eight percent annualized total uh, annualized return over the past five years.
0: Okay, well, gold's been a, a standout performer, hasn't it this year? Sort of partly because of the safe haven yeah. sort of status, obviously as well. But you see that going back to new all-time highs fairly soon.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it gets enough uh, headlines in the world also or, or either. Uh, I think I mean that is, you know, as you sa- as you said, it's been trading at these uh, these very um, important highs, and it's 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 the clearly go-to market when uh, when things look a little bit. Uh, dicing on the geopolitical front, 100. That's 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 a that's a global market that uh, I I think uh, needs to get a little bit more recognition out in the in the news media and uh, research analyst ecosystem. Okay, great. Well, look,
0: Jeff, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts there and for updating us on the Southeast Asian markets. That's Jeff Howey, who is market strategist at the Singapore Exchange.
1: You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money.
0: Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the year. I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy. And with a view from South Korea, is Peter Kim, Head of Global Investment Strategy at the KB Financial Group in Seoul. Have a good day. Money Talk.